15 through to 5.10. We were looking this morning at the subject of Christian hope. And uh, this evening we're looking at the subject of Christian motivation. And we'll look at that from verse 10 of chapter 5 through to the end of the chapter. Uh, Some while ago I was making a journey uh, in this country. I was travelling north and I stopped off at a little chef uh, because of my caffeine addiction and um, I was sitting at a coffee table and uh, you know how it is you don't intend to listen to the conversation on the neighbouring table but in the intimate surroundings of the little chef it's rather hard to avoid hearing the conversation going on and two men were sitting on the neighbouring table to me and um, one older man was briefing another man younger man on how to sell insurance in fact I learnt quite a few things which will stand me in good stead for when the next guy comes knocking on my door. Uh, He was saying, for example, the kind of tie you had to wear, the suit you had to wear if you were in Edinburgh or if you were out in some village, um, the approach you should have if it's a man or if it's a woman who answers the door, um, whether you should stand or sit in the living room when you make your sales pitch, all kinds of information about how to sell insurance. And um, through this conversation, at the end of all of those ideas, um, one phrase stood out from the young man to the old man as I listened to the conversation. Uh, he, he was obviously very uncertain about what he was being told. And the older man said to him that this was necessary if he was going to make it. If he was going to make it, this is what you'd have to do. Now, of course, um, selling insurance is perfectly legitimate and uh, the profit motive is perfectly legitimate in my view. But what was rather distasteful about that conversation was the the rather manipulative manner that this younger man was being encouraged to adopt. It it wasn't the customer who was really the focus of attention, nor even the product selling insurance. The main thing was that by using these techniques, this young man was going to climb the ladder. He was going to make it. He was going to uh, prove himself. Now, I, I use that as an opening illustration because that is exactly what Paul was being accused of by some people in Corinth. As far as they were concerned, Paul's main motives in carrying out his ministry as an apostle were simply to build his own empire. Paul was just interested in his own personal prestige, in his own power base. That was one of the accusations, as far as we can tell, that was being made against Paul by various people in Corinth. And so Paul, in various ways in this letter, replies to that kind of criticism. He says... I don't fall into the trap of boasting about my achievements. I'm not going to write a testimonial on my own behalf, he says actually earlier on in chapter 3, verse 1. And in this section, which we read together, if you just take a look at verse 12, he says, I'm not the slightest bit interested in promoting myself, or an image, so to speak. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, he says. As far as he's concerned, his critics in Corinth had a warped sense of values. They were people, as far as we can tell, who gloried in appearance. They liked the very fast, cool preachers who knew all of the language. They were impressed by image. They boasted in their reputation, in their position. They took pride in what is seen, Paul says. But he was governed by entirely different motives. His calling to serve God as an apostle was shaped by very different convictions. Not personal gain. Uh, some while ago I interviewed a young guy um, in, in uh, my home city who just graduated from university and uh, he applied to work uh, uh, in what we call full-time Christian service 
for a mission in Europe. It wasn't IPS, it was another mission, and I was asked to interview him and talk through the implications of this. And so, in, very early on in the conversation, I asked him, well, what are the reasons? Why do you want to be involved in this mission? He said, well, basically, there are two main reasons. First of all, I'd like to travel around Europe. And secondly, I'd like to be financially secure. And those are the two main reasons why he was applying for Christian service. Now, I think I speak to an audience that knows not only was that fairly naive, I mean, not many of us going to Christian work to be financially secure, let me tell you. And then secondly, it was also very, well, it was rather selfish in its orientation, wasn't it? It was to do with personal fulfilment. I would like to suggest this evening that if we really understand the basic motivations for our Christian service, we will be able to cope with all of the ups and downs which we confront in whatever area God calls us to serve him. Whether it is in so-called mission or in full-time Christian service, whether it's in our jobs, whether it's uh, on Saturday night uh, with the van, whatever area of service it is that God calls us to do, knowing why we do what we do is absolutely essential. And that's what I'd like to look at from these verses. I'd like to suggest three big reasons three big commitments, three big motivations for our service. Because in any form of Christian service, I do think we will find that we are frequently tempted to give up, to throw in the towel. And unless we know why we do what we do, uh, we will soon give up. So whatever ministry it is, whether it's here in Edinburgh or further afield, let me draw your attention to these three commitments that Paul had and which we should. First of all, the first uh, motivation is this. We are loved by Jesus, our Saviour. We are loved by Jesus, our Saviour. In fact, we began with that. Colin uh, drew our attention to that right at the beginning. It is, as as Paul puts it in verse 14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. J.B. Phillips paraphrases, paraphrases that the very spring of our action is the love of Christ. So, the first reason for wholehearted service to God, wherever you are serving him, the first reason is because we are loved. It is not in the first instance because there is a great need, although that's true. It's not in the first instance because I feel guilty and I ought to do something about it, although sometimes that may be a motivating factor. And it's not in the first instance because it will be a matter of personal fulfilment, although it may well be. In the first instance, the first big reason for being committed to serve God in in society, in mission, wherever God places us, is because we are pushed forward by the love of Christ. That's really what verse 14 implies. It implies a gentle and a firm pressure. We are compelled by Christ's love. Some years ago, I uh, visited students in Poland, and it was a beautiful summer, and uh, on one of the days, they decided they'll do some team building, which is very trendy, and they got us all in canoes, and we spent about 14 hours in teams uh, canoeing across the lakes of northern Poland. And it was a beautiful day. We began early in the morning, and it was on a, a wide lake, perfectly still, wonderful first hour. But then gradually, the lake began to uh, narrow down uh, rapidly, so that as the lake narrowed, so the flow of water increased, and uh, until eventually it had come right down to a very narrow stream with the water um, hurtling between the banks and the canoes lifted up and carried forward 
uh, by that force of the water going through the narrow banks. Now, I think that's really what is implied in verse 14, where he says the love of Christ uh, exerts this kind of pressure, constrains us, compels us. It's like the the river banks squeezing in so that the water pushes forward. That's the gentle and firm pressure. In fact, the logic of what Paul says, um, Andrew will just throw up on the screen, it's in verses 14 and 15, you can follow it through. You'll notice verse verse 14, very significant phrase, he says, Christ died for all. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. He's the saviour of the world, Paul is saying. The scope of the work of Jesus is universal. It's for all men and women. Irrespective of their culture, or their background, or their age, our message, our gospel message, is that salvation through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ is open to all. Therefore, all died. Now, in the light of verse 15, I think that means uh, death to our old way of life, our sinful life, our self-centred life. That goes on. Therefore, we no longer live for ourselves. The centre of gravity of my life, now I've come to know Jesus, has shifted. It's no longer myself, it's no longer self-interest, but it's serving Christ who gave everything for me. As he puts it, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I've died to my old way of life, I live for Jesus Christ because of those historic realities of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the logic. Actually, the NEB translates this verse, the love of Christ leaves me no choice. That's precisely what Paul is saying. It's because of what Jesus has done for me that I have no choice. I'm compelled. I'm convinced. I'm pushed forward in my service because of what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. Um, I remember speaking to an, another friend, Adrian seen to uh, Tom, this particular friend of mine was a young graduate from Oxford, uh, where I live, and he went to uh, Yakutsk, which is also in Siberia. I don't know if you know Yakutsk. Um, it's up in, near up in the uh, Arctic Circle. You can't reach it by road, actually. There are no road links, only, uh, nor rail links. You can only fly in there. Um, it's uh, uh, very inhospitable. The temperature drops about minus 60 in the winter. Um, it's grey, it's expensive. It's the centre for Baha'i in, uh, in Yakutia, which is a region about the size of India, just to give you a feel for the size of Siberia. It's massive territory. Um, there are very few Christians living there. And uh, I spoke to this young guy when he came back home to Oxford just for a, a, a brief period, and then he was going back out to Yakutsk. I said, why bury yourself there? I mean, after you've been there a couple of weeks, the excitement wears off. Really. It's a very, very grey place to live. It's hardly the place to make a name for yourself. It's hardly a place for an Oxford graduate to, uh, it's hardly uh, a good career path. And he said, very simply, the reason why he gave his energies, he was working amongst young people in the city, was the sheer joy of seeing some of those young people come to faith in Jesus Christ. The desperate lives of these young people turned round because of meeting Jesus. He'd seen the logic of verse 14. He knew that Christ had died for him, and therefore he should live differently, but he knew that Christ died for all. That was the uh, motivating force for him. It wasn't just personal. So I think the logic is clear for me, and I hope it is for you. Jesus gave everything he had. That's what Paul is saying in these verses. He gave his life. So the first great incentive for our work in society, 
uh, our work in mission, our work in the church and beyond, the first motivating force is that we are loved by Jesus our Saviour. Secondly, we are responsible to Jesus our Judge. I asked uh, Claire to begin at verse 10. The NIV actually put the heading at verse 11, as you may have noticed in the Bible. That verse 10 links the earlier section we were looking at this morning about the future and about hope with now this next section, which is about the, the ministry of reconciliation. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Verse 10 is a very important reminder of that future reality, a judgment of our stewardship. And this judgment which Paul refers to is not a judgment about our destiny. It's a judgment to do with how we have lived our lives here and now. It's a judgment on our stewardship. Um, Let me fill that out a bit more in the way I couldn't this morning. If you know uh, Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 3, he gives a very simple illustration. In 1 Corinthians 3 he says that our lives are meant to be built on one foundation and that is the foundation of Jesus Christ. If you build your life on Jesus Christ, your life is absolutely secure, now and in eternity. But he says, that is not the end of the matter. Because the question is not only, what is the foundation for your life, but also, how are you building on that foundation? And in explaining this image, he says, well, you have two options. You can either build with things which are temporary, as he puts it, short-lived things like wood, hay, stubble, or you can build with things which will last forever. As he puts it, gold, silver, and precious stones. And the point of his illustration is that one day, how we build is going to be tested. And so the fundamental question is, when it's tested in the future, will it just disappear in a cloud of smoke, or will it last into eternity? So he says, how you build matters. How you live your life now counts. And he says back here in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 that on that future day there will be a very practical judgment. You see, it says, for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So on that day, everything will be out in the open. Again, I want to underline what I said this morning. This verse is not intended to cloud our hope about that future day when we meet Jesus. It's not intended to dampen our joy of what we anticipate and there we will be with all of God's people in heaven singing that song we were singing a moment ago, Salvation Belongs to Our God, standing before the throne. It's not intended to do that. What it is intended to do, though, is to be a stimulus to faithful service here and now. It's a reminder of our obligation to serve the judge, Jesus himself. So when I read a verse like this, I ask myself, well, how am I using my time? How am I using my gifts? How am I using the resources which God has given me? How am I using the many God-given opportunities which I have? All of these things matter, Paul says, in the light of the future. And when we look back on our lives and say, well, basically I've lived a life and everything I've done is just, it's gone, it's tempted. Or when we look back and see that we've built for something that will last, something for eternity. So, this verse is a stimulus to faithful service. It's a wholehearted call to give our energies for God's kingdom, not for, for personal gain, which is temporary, but for something that will last forever.
just put in the context, I, I love the twin parables that Jesus told. Do you remember the parable of the farmer and um, what we sometimes call the pearl preach? There are two parables which sit together. Uh, the farmer who one day was out in the field and uh, he suddenly discovered uh, underneath the horse, underneath the plough, uh, some treasure. So he buried it, he went home, he sold everything that he had in order to buy the field. And then the adjacent parable is the parable of the pearl freak who collected pearls. And one day he came across uh, the pearl to end all pearls. The largest, the purest, the roundest, the most beautiful pearl. And so in order to buy that pearl, he went home and he sold his entire pearl collection. He sold his house, he sold his CDs, he sold everything he had in order to get that pearl. And the interesting thing about those parables, as Jesus told them, was that Jesus says, out of joy, they went and sold everything they had. In other words, this was not some sacrifice as far as they were concerned. Giving up all those other things, selling everything else, was not a sacrifice. They did it joyfully because of what they knew they were going to achieve. What they knew they would discover in the treasure or in the pearl. It was worth it to lose all of those other things. Now, I think Jesus tells those stories to underline exactly the same point. Paul is saying it here. Um, Give your life for something that's worthwhile. Be a good steward of your life. Give your life for something that will last forever. Be a good builder. Give your energies to the kingdom of God. I took a a journey the other day um, from Leicester down to London. I was driving and I took with me uh, a guy who just graduated with a very good degree in economics. And I asked him as we left uh, Leicester what he was now going to do. And uh, I didn't need to ask another question for about 100 miles, which is virtually the journey to London, because he had it all mapped out. He was going to join a NatWest bank. And uh, he told me all of the different uh, 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 positions that he hoped to have in his uh, upwardly mobile progression through this organisation, what we these days uh, have to refer to, I'm afraid, as a career ego. He knew exactly what he hoped to do. And uh, we continued that conversation for a little while, not just about the career path in the Nat West, but what were the motivations? I come back to that issue again. I have no doubt in my mind, of course, that we are urgently in need of Christians entering the Nat West Bank. We are urgently in need of Christians rising to the very top echelons of uh, banking and politics and social uh, uh, services and the professions of teaching and in the pastorate and in youth work. Uh, librarians, estate agents even, second-hand car salesmen. We need Christians everywhere. (laughs) I am not speaking against that. And I am also saying we need them at all levels as God's people, engaging in the society where God has placed us. But the ambition to be the best that I can be should not be driven by the hope of material gain or driven by my hope of career advancement but by my desire to be wholehearted in my service for Jesus Christ, for God's kingdom. And if I remain at the bottom or go to the top, that is God's business. I work energetically for this purpose. I am responsible to Jesus, the judge. Uh, Many of you have prayed for Christians in in Rwanda and Burundi, and I remember when I was serving uh, with IPS in student ministry, many of my friends and colleagues lost their lives in the 90s during the genocide in Rwanda. 
uh, Christians there who stood against racism and stood for Jesus Christ and the unity of God's people often did lose their lives. And on one occasion, there was one remaining staff worker, one of our colleagues left, the Rwandan, uh, by the name of Antoine, and uh, we sent him a, a fax to say that we had enough money to fly him and his family out of the country. And uh, uh, the fax was sent by one of my colleagues, and almost by return, the message came back that uh, he refused, he would not leave with his, his family. Uh, he said this in the fact, if I cannot share my people's pain, I cannot share the gospel with them. And he decided to stay with his family and to continue his ministry despite the cost. And uh, I always remember reading that line, but there was nothing half-hearted about that brother, nothing double-minded in that response. Here was someone whose focus was, was clear, his priorities were very sharp indeed. He knew what he had to do. He knew whom he was serving. And so I want to say to myself, and if I may also to everyone listening, we are called as God's people to give our lives wholeheartedly with that future in view. We are loved by Jesus our Saviour who gave everything for us. And we are responsible to Jesus our Judge. Two big motives for our engagement in this society until we meet Jesus our Saviour and our Lord and our Judge. Finally, one third motivation. We are sent by Jesus our King. We are sent by Jesus our King. Have a look at verse 20. We are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, of course, in this section of chapter 5, Paul introduces us to the dimensions of our new life and to the ministry of reconciliation which God has given us. It's a wonderfully rich section of the Bible, and I haven't time to go into detail, but let me just highlight under a few brief headings the features of what he has to say. First, he says, we have a new orientation. Have a look at verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Now Paul's already said that one result of coming to know Jesus is that he looks at himself differently from a new perspective. He now no longer is interested in himself, he lives for Jesus Christ, as we've just been underlining. That's the logic of verses 14 and 15. And now in 16, he goes on, he says, so from now on, verse 16, I look at other people differently as well. In other words, I do not judge people by the standards of this world. I don't judge people by external image. I don't judge people by their nationality or their culture. I see people differently. Now I've come to know Jesus Christ. It's a very interesting verse. An entirely new orientation. And the reason is, of course, as we've seen, if Christ died for all, verse 14, and I now see myself differently, I now live for him, so if Christ died for all, I see everyone else differently as well. Before Paul was converted, again he implies this in verse 16, he judged Jesus by his own religious prejudices. As far as he's concerned, someone who'd been executed on a cross certainly couldn't be the great deliverer that the Jews were talking about. But after he met Jesus Christ, his estimate was different. His understanding of who Jesus was was transformed. Christ was not some obscure Galilean. Christ was the saviour of the world. And in the same way as he now saw Christ differently, he saw others differently. To be in God's family is to see other people differently. So, let's suppose we sign up 
for going out of the van and we go down to Waverley Bridge, is it? Or any of the other bridges on a Saturday night or as I do, I can sit hours sometimes sitting at airports or sitting at railway stations and huge numbers of people passing by and I sometimes ask myself, how do I see all of these people? Or tonight, you know, if you go down, down to the city centre about midnight and you'll see all kinds of people, I can guarantee. I'm sure Edinburgh's the same as Oxford and any, any city of the world these days. How do we see these people? Paul is saying, we see them differently. We see these people as made in God's image and people for whom Jesus Christ died. We will not judge people by the world's yardstick, by the prejudices of our own culture, but we see people as people whom God loves and for whom Jesus died, whom God longs to bring into his family. And we're sent by Jesus the King with that message to all men and women. Secondly, it's not just a new orientation, which is our engagement in society and with all people, but secondly, a new creation. Verse 17, of course, the most well-known phrase as Paul uh, introduces us to this wonderful message of reconciliation that we are to bring to this needy world, he uses this very well-known description of conversion. He describes the change which comes about as people put their faith in Christ. It's universal, again you'll notice, if anyone is in Christ, doesn't matter who you are, Christ died for all. If anyone is in Christ, it's not only universal, it's total. There is a new creation. Becoming a Christian means you enter a whole new world of experience. It's a total transformation, a new creation. And it's radical. The old has gone, the new has come. Reconciliation with God means a radical change of allegiance. Our old way of life is put to death, our new life is in Christ, as we've already seen. Now I mention this because one of the great challenges of mission in our own continent is to do with the fact of what we uh, call nominalism, or sometimes notionalism, that in some countries in Europe, 96% of people will put their hands up to say they are Christians, but probably only 2 or 3% have living faith in Jesus Christ as far as we can tell. It's a kind of nominal faith. But according to what Paul is saying here, to be a Christian is not just to believe a Christian creed, or to undergo Christian ceremonies, or even to adopt a particular Christian code of behaviour. To be a Christian is to be united to Jesus Christ, transformed by him, living for him. That's the message of reconciliation that we're called to bring. Thirdly, a new relationship. Again, I haven't time to expand these in great detail, but verses 18 onwards is Paul's description of this wonderful message of reconciliation. How sin is removed and how instead, by this great exchange, we take Christ's Righteousness, as he describes it in verse 21. God made him who had, had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a profound statement about what Jesus has done for us. That's the message of reconciliation, as he says, verse 19, committed to us. We are sent by Jesus the King. And that's even more clear, fourthly, in a new ministry, which is the verse which I quote at the beginning, verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He uses this illustration of the ambassador, the uh, king's envoy, and it's a very bold analogy. You notice that the language he uses, he says, we are speaking on behalf of God. It's as though God were making his appeal through us. 
to the men and women of this city. We speak, verse 20, on Christ's behalf. Now I think these verses are very important because part of our service in society is to hold true to what is being said in this section of the Bible. It is not uncommon these days in the world of other religions in the context of pluralism, which we're all very familiar with, to be asked, why are you Christians so arrogant as to say that Jesus is the saviour of the whole world? I mean, it's okay for you, you, you Scott, it's okay for, for you, white, okay for Caucasians, but don't try to absolutize it. Don't universalize it. Don't say Jesus is the saviour of the world. And of course, that's going to be increasingly the question being asked of us in a world of pluralism. Um, many, many people are much happier with the idea of multiple choice. I, I read not long ago the words of Mike Gatton. I believe in a bit of everything, he said. God, the supernatural, ghosts, superstition, UFOs. I like to keep my options open. Now that's very common. And I think these verses here that Paul gives us help us to respond with conviction to that question. Why do we proclaim the name of Jesus Christ? We're called to proclaim him because of what Paul said. Christ died for all. We're called to proclaim him because of what Paul says. We speak on Christ's behalf. That's the basis of our authority. Of course, we do that with humility. We do that with great sensitivity in a, in a world of, of multi, uh, a multicultural, plural environment. We do that with sensitivity and humility, but we do not lose our boldness in asserting this reality. We should never shrink from the task of proclaiming Jesus as Lord. We should not be intimidated by today's religious pluralism. We are sent by Jesus the King. And the other thing to notice about verse 20 is where he, he speaks uh, in the second half, he says, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Actually, the word you is not there. We implore. We beg. In other words, this calling, as Jesus sends us into this world, is not, uh, as Paul implies, this, this ambassador, um, just standing on his dignity. Um, in many cities of the world, the ambassadors, of course, live in the very nice houses, they have big cars, it's all very formal. Well, Paul doesn't stand on his dignity, he's down on his knees, he is urging people, he is begging people, imploring people, be reconciled to God. So this verse, as God calls us, as Jesus sends us, Jesus the King sends us, combines both the authority and the urgency of our task. The authority of speaking on Christ's behalf, the urgency we implore on Christ's behalf. Because Christ died for all, our calling is to take that message to a world that's broken by sin and to do that with the wholehearted commitment of those who are called by God. We have been chosen by him to make that appeal. So there is the third foundation, the third motivation for our ministry. We are sent by Jesus our King with authority and with urgency. It's a message for all. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that Christ died for all. Now, I think as I reflect on my own uh, efforts, in my own service to the Lord, or if I think about my own church, we are, we are often discussing our new strategies for evangelism or the past that God has given us in society. Or sometimes I'm working in our Langham team thinking about the, the global challenge and strategic thinking. All of that's necessary. But I tend to think that what I need most of all as I think about the challenge ahead for us 
That's how it's happened in Edinburgh. I think about the challenge of God's people. It's not some new strategy, but actually a new inspiration. And you'll notice in all three themes that I've tried to draw out from this passage, Paul explains that the basic inspiration, the basic motivation, is a person. It's Jesus himself. So my final quotation, which I hope will be on screen now, is something written by John Stott on this subject. Nothing is more important for the recovery of the church's mission where it's been lost or its development where it is weak than a fresh, clear and comprehensive vision of Jesus Christ. When he is demeaned, and especially when he is denied in the fullness of his unique person and work, the church lacks motivation and direction, our morale crumbles and our mission disintegrates. But when we see Jesus, it is enough. We have all the inspiration, incentive, authority and power that we need. So that's the answer to the needs of this broken world, isn't it? That's the answer to the needs of our own broken lives. It is Jesus who died and rose again. There's no greater motivation in our service than that reality. If we have Jesus, we have enough. So in summary, we are loved by Jesus our Saviour, we are responsible to Jesus our Judge, we are sent by Jesus our Saviour. Let's pray for you.